0: Our scripture this morning is from 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke. Rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry.
1: You know, our family, one of the things we like doing around here uh, in these parts is camping. Uh, We like to go out, and and my favorite right now is out on Utica uh, Reservoir. And uh, I like dispersed camping. Uh, campgrounds are fine, but I would rather not spend my away time next to a group of people that might be as loud uh, or louder than my house is normally uh, with three little kids. So uh, I like to go out to an island uh, out there with just family and, and we canoe out there. And, and one of the beautiful things when you're camping is that night sky, especially, I mean, our night skies are great, even right in Arnold in this area, but you even get just a little further out, like something like, Uh, up by the lakes up there, and the night sky is just gorgeous. And it just lights up and, pardon the pun, but the star of the show, uh, to me, is always the moon. You get it? That's nice. Uh, Is always the moon, especially when it's full and when it's big and when it's bright. Uh, And it's just gorgeous to see, and you can see such amazing detail uh, when you actually just get out of civilization a little bit. And you look at it and uh, there is a reason why I'm talking about the moon. Uh, The moon reminds me a little bit of our topic for today, the the Apostles' Creed. So we're the second week in the sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And the reason it reminds me of the moon is because the moon, is, is as far as its beauty, is nothing without the sun reflecting off of it. Right? Without, without sunshine coming and, and reflecting on the moon and you seeing what it is, it, it would just be a dark spot in the sky. It would be a spot where you just didn't see any stars behind it. But when, but when it reflects the sun, when it reflects uh, the beauty that, that comes from the sun, the moon can be truly spectacular. And the reason that makes me think of the Apostles' Creed is that while this sermon series is focused on the Apostles' Creed, I have zero intent to preach the Apostles' Creed. The reason being, the Apostles' Creed itself can can be nice, it can show uh, Scripture, it can show some beauty, but but it doesn't have the authority itself. Now, it has the authority in that it reflects, like the moon, it can reflect Scripture, it can reflect what uh, God has shown us, But the creed itself is only as beautiful as it reflects the Word of God. So so this space, this this pulpit up here on this stage, this is a space reserved for, for worship. It's a space reserved for leading God's people in worship songs, and it's a space reserved for meditating and reflecting on Scripture. So we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed, but we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed as a tool, in a toolbox that lets us look at Scripture that lets us reflect on, on the truth that is within Scripture. Now, why then not just go to Scripture itself all the time? Why even look at the Apostles' Creed? And, and it's fairly simple. Scripture, it's a little bit robust. I think you're all aware of that. Uh, if you just start reading from the beginning, uh, there's a lot there, and, and it can be a little hard if somebody were to say to you, hey, what, what's the core Christian beliefs. What's the core Christian uh, doctrine? To use a nice church word, uh, what what is the core of Christianity? And you were to say, "Well, Genesis one one," and then you just read the whole thing, uh, you might lose their attention. You will lose their attention. But uh, other Christians, other believers, other followers of God have have taken time uh, and and in in much prayer and much reflection have created statements like like the Apostles' Creed. And and the beauty of it is uh, that it reflects on the truth that is within Scripture. So why don't we start today uh, by reading the Apostles' Creed together. Now, if you don't believe these words, or or you don't believe them yet, don't be afraid, uh, and we'll make that bigger for you so you can read it. (laughs) Don't worry. Uh, If you don't believe these words yet, that's fine. That's okay. We don't believe in, like, mantras kind of thing in in Christianity. So this isn't going to, like, do something to you uh, by saying these words. Uh, This is not magic. Uh, These are words that God's people have spoken, but you're also welcome to just not say them. Um, But for those of you that that this is true, that this is where your heart is, uh, why don't we read these words together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born under the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So this, this sermon series that we're in it's going to be uh, kind of this three part series. So last week we talked about some of the history of the Apostles' Creed, what was going on in the early church uh, when it was first written down, and today we're going to look uh, a little more broadly at the Apostles' Creed and how it's been used through the centuries uh, by the church and and what we can learn from that today. And then next week, uh, next week we're going to walk line by line uh, through the Apostles' Creed and, and look at Scripture and where it comes from and and what is tied in. So we're going to uh, save some of that for next week, just because um, you don't want to be here all day, right? We could just do it. Uh, so we're going to save some of that for next week, and then this week, uh, again, we're going to focus on how has the Apostles' Creed been used? through the years? How has it been used by the church uh, and what can we learn from that today? So looking at uh, this creed, I see three main uses and and you could argue other minor ones, but but the first one is it has been used as this document to help shape God's people. Particularly to help shape their beliefs, help shape, uh, mold them uh, as God's people, form them as God's people. I think of Uh, a picture of a potter over his or her clay and and molding it and shaping it into something intentional and something beautiful. And the Apostles' Creed has been used as this tool uh, by the church through the years to to help in that. So people, uh, either that were coming of age or that were first introduced to Christianity, um, often what the practice was in the early church is that they would receive something like the Apostles' Creed and it would be kind of an outline and uh, before making a more formal commitment to their faith, they would go through it. Uh, In the early days, it was over the course of of normally a full year, and they would have some kind of mentor figure, someone that had been uh, a believer for a long time, and they would walk through uh, the truth that is in the Apostles' Creed, uh, again, reflecting back on Scripture, not just the Creed itself, and uh, they would kind of use that as a way that when that person is brought into full harmony into the church, uh, that they would know that they are theologically uh, in, in sync with, with where the church is on these core issues. So it's been used as this, this shaping tool uh, for God's people, and is still used by many churches uh, in that way. The second way is that it has been used as this unifying force, God's people, this document that helps helps solidify uh, God's people, helps bring unity to the church, uh, a church that throughout history, it doesn't take much research to realize there's been a lot of division, that there's been a lot of of splitting of the church, but yet uh, the unity of God's people is is important. It is actually uh, what Jesus prays for uh, as he prays for the church right before he ascends to heaven is that they would be unified that they would be one. Uh, so this document has been used in that way. Uh, left to our own uh, isolation and our own study of Scripture or even sometimes our mixing of our own beliefs or maybe some cultural beliefs in and, and Christianity and Scripture and mixing them together, it is amazing what people come up with. <laughs> it's amazing what, what uh, people throughout history and people today what kind of theology, what kind of beliefs about God, what kind of beliefs about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the work of the cross and redemption and, and resurrection and all these things. It, it is incredible uh, the diversity of, of people's beliefs. And I'm not talking about beliefs that, that are them going to scripture and kind of wrestling with what scripture says. I mean, mixing things like Greek philosophy and, and biblical Christianity and coming up with with an idea that that our earthly bodies are evil. That that was a common one. That our earthly bodies are are somehow sinful and terrible, and and therefore certainly we draw the conclusion that Jesus couldn't have really taken on flesh. That's that's a belief that has gone through many centuries of the church. It's wrong, but don't quote me on it. (laughs) Don't don't like, Pastor John said this in church today. Uh, But but again, it's this mixing of, that one was Greek philosophy and and mixing of biblical Christianity and coming up with this kind of third way that that really isn't isn't true to either one. So people come up with these these really interesting lists. Uh, but, But the Apostles' Creed has been used to help unify the church by listing some of the core biblical teachings uh, in a way that, that is somewhat uh, succinct and not uh, just as long as reading maybe the whole New Testament or, or the whole Bible, uh, it is able to be this document that, that uh, can assure believers throughout time that, that the people that live in that other village, the people that live in that other town, and our other believers, are teaching roughly the same thing that we are. You know, so that, that has great value because otherwise you're isolated and you're alone. And what if, uh, what if we've gone astray or what if they've gone astray? You know, you can have uh, hard, really hard situations and even divisions in the church. So it has been used as this source to help shape God's people. It has been used as this source to help unify God's people. But the other part of that unifying uh, is the third area that I'll focus on most of today. And it has been used to help correct errors in the church, correct errors of belief, things that, that people have uh, kind of come up with over the years. And, and as I mentioned, truly strange uh, things that you'll probably be surprised to know that, that segments of Christianity uh, has kind of believed, ideas about God, ideas about Jesus, ideas about the Holy Spirit and salvation uh, that do not follow biblical teaching. Uh, Therefore, the teaching that's in the Bible, but yet kind of go astray in many, many different ways. I'm going to list just a few because uh, these things have a way of popping back up (laughs) over time. So these are historical ones. These are ones uh, reaching all the way back to just after the time of the apostles. Uh, So Christian heresy, as we like to call it. Uh, What heresy is... It's just a belief or a doctrine that's contrary to, to orthodox uh, biblical teachings. And, and sometimes that phrase sounds a little bit like there's a group of Christians that decide what's in and what's out. But actually how that has worked through, uh, through history a little more is, is when it's biblical, it means that there's a group that is saying this is what's actually in the Bible. And these other things, some of these other things that I'm going to list these just simply aren't in the New Testament. We can't read the Bible faithfully and come to these conclusions. So yes, it's saying that, that there's kind of an approved, so to speak, uh, list of theology, but that approved list is simply based on Scripture. Does that make sense? It's not a bunch of like white-haired men uh, from 1,500 years ago that are sitting in a room. No offense to white-haired men. Uh, <laughs> coming up with what we all should believe. Right? But yet it is, uh, it's, it's this list um, that says this is what the Bible teaches. So, again, popular uh, heresy throughout the ages. Number one, there's many differing beliefs about Jesus. So one is this, Jesus is neither eternal nor fully divine as God the Father is. Very, very common, through the church, so this confusion on, on who is Jesus, that, that he's not quite like, like God is, that he's, he's not maybe eternal, he doesn't live forever, that he's not fully divine, so kind of denying that divinity of Jesus. The second one, interestingly, is that, that Jesus was not always God. Again, these have ways of popping back up. So, so maybe there was some time in Jesus' earthly life where he was kind of officially adopted by God, and, and then he became God, but he wasn't uh, conceived that way. He wasn't born that way. It was like when he like, came of age, then, then all of a sudden he just like became God and man at the same time. Wow. Again, don't quote me on these, right? <laughs> these, but, but these are very popular beliefs through, through time. And if you pay attention to uh, friends and family, sometimes you hear them. Uh, and it's very interesting. Third one, to do the opposite, Jesus was not fully human. So again, more confusion on who Jesus is. So very popular through uh, human history to think that maybe Jesus wasn't fully human, as I hinted at earlier, um, that Jesus only took on the appearance of looking like a human being. But really, really he was God. That that something tricked the eyes of of the people around him, And, and certainly he couldn't have bled. Certainly he wouldn't have had emotions, like like when he's in the garden. And and of course, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? Uh, But that's where these come from, and it's this idea of mixing things together and coming up uh, with kind of this different form of Christianity. Number four is kind of a dualist or a dual view of who God is. And, And this one pops up now and again. Um, it's this view that the God of the Old Testament is somehow radically different and and completely different than the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful God, is a God that that seeks to punish people, and certainly that uh, in this view doesn't sound like the God of the New Testament. Therefore, maybe there's two gods. Maybe there's this evil one that created the world, and therefore we can say that human flesh is bad, right? Because if, if it, evil God created it, then we can kind of write it off. And, and then in the New Testament, there's another God that kind of saves it. These sound a little odd to us, right? Uh, I'll get to some that don't sound as odd and maybe sound a little more convicting. Uh, <laughs> the, the last one here, again, throughout Christian history, there has been Christians that have argued that you can earn your way to heaven. There have been Christians that have argued that if you do enough good deeds and you're a believer, that, that you can make your way into heaven, that, that you can elevate your status, that, that it's not necessarily about grace. It's not about, about God's grace for us and Jesus' death on the cross as much as it is our own merit, our own work, our own uh, attempts to, uh, to be good. Again, so many differing views, and a lot of these contradict each other, uh, which is very interesting, particularly around Jesus, and that's why in something like the Apostles' Creed, what's the largest section? It's the section on who is Jesus Christ, right? because that was the biggest area of, of, of tension, the biggest area of, of concern. So the Apostles' Creed has been this helpful tool over time in the church to, to somewhat look at what is approved, so to speak biblical uh, Christian teaching because all these other ones I mean I could go through, but there's there's scripture that contradicts every single one of those it's, it's not like those are close enough that you could kind of misread scripture like no, it says how Jesus was conceived right I mean that's just in there, there there's no there's no saying maybe he became God later like that that's just in the Bible. It's, it's in the Gospels over and over again. Um, but yet, how, how do how have people gotten kind of confused by it? Now this one might sit a little closer to home. So there's this survey that is done of American Evangelical Christians. And it's a survey that's actually done every two years. So these are our peers that they're looking at. These are people that sit in churches just like uh, you are right now, and and then ask them theologically where, where they believe in a number of different areas. And the survey is called, if you want to look it up, it's called, What is Our Theological Temperature? Uh, and you can just Google that, and it will come to the to the answers. And you can actually look back uh, over time and how Americans have answered. And there's, there's a whole section for people that aren't uh, evangelical Christians, and it says kind of how the, the broader society answers the question, and then how evangelical Christians are answering the question. But note... It's not pastors, and it's not seminary professors, and it's not what's officially on my church's website as far as our beliefs. It's, it's what do the people of the church uh, actually believe. And it's a little bit disturbing. All right, so again, these are our peers. These are not people that we can... Uh, sort of write off and be like, well, that's not like my church. That's not like people that sit next to me. That's that's some other group. No, these are American evangelical Christians. I have five things that, that I'll mention here. One, there's large swatches of evangelical Christians that deny that Jesus was God in the flesh. Commonly denied when they ask people. That Jesus was God in the flesh. Number two, denied the deity or or the God-ness of Christ. Denying that Jesus was truly God. These aren't over 50%, but these are something like 30% of American evangelical Christians that are denying that Jesus is God in the flesh or denying that Jesus was God at all. They think he was just some good earthly teacher, some smart rabbi that lived a long time ago. Less than half, again half, less than half, agreed with this statement. The Bible is the word of God, and it is true. Less than half. This should sit a little odd with us. Right. This this should be a little haunting to us now. Now you can label yourself as an evangelical Christian, be very very new to your faith. So of course there's there's always that, uh, but that certainly can't make this statement of less than half make any sense, right? Again, less than half agreed that the Bible is the word of God and that it is true. Six out of ten believed in a literal heaven. Only six out of ten. But over half said that you don't need to believe in Jesus to go there. American evangelical Christians. Again, six out of ten believed in a literal heaven, but over half said that you don't need to believe in Jesus to go there. 75% a big number. 75% said that most people are basically good and only sin a little bit and don't need much grace. 75%. Most people are basically good, again, just in in the face of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just just in the face of, of Scripture uh, they've said that most people are basically good in that they only sin a little bit and they don't need much grace from God. That there isn't this, this tremendous gap between us and this holy, righteous God and that we, that we fully are reliant on the grace of the cross. The list, and again, you can look it up, but the list just goes on and on and on some more disturbing than others, some, quite frankly, worded in ways that I'm like, maybe the wording's confusing. But I I tried to pick ones that were as clear as possible uh, to show you that this is not some issue of I didn't understand the question. Uh, and, And the question goes from strongly agree to strongly disagree, and many of these are on the strongly disagree side. So, the theological waters, if you will, that we are all swimming in, even in the Church of America, have become so muddied, they've become so messy, that, that it's rubbing off, I think, on all of us. As we talk to, to our friends, as we talk to other people around us, people that are, that are Bible-attending, or church-attending people, that are Bible-believing people, uh, even if apparently some don't believe it's true, uh, People that that go to worship are even confused. So how are we a witness out into the world? This is why why statements like the Apostles' Creed are still needed today. It's not uh, not that it has all the answers, but it it points us in a direction that, that saves us from a lot of this confusion. It it actually seems like faith has become this sort of exercise uh, to many that allows you to just pick and choose different parts of Christianity and, and kind of form your own ideas and say, well, this, this is what I believe. I, I've chosen this part, I've taken this part, and and I really like this part of this other religion, and I put it in here, and I... I think atheism's really good on this, and I and I put it in, and I've like made my own spiritual beliefs, and and now I can just sit in that. Now I can just find people that maybe I agree with, that maybe say the same kind of things as me, and I can let that feed into me, and and, and ignore uh, everything else. And and it's truly a disturbing situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, it's it's truly. Uh, a situation where, let me, let me just say this part, Christian theology matters, right? We still believe that, <laughs> that it matters what, what you believe, that it matters what you think, that it, it affects how you interact with the world, that it affects what what how you treat other people, what evangelism looks like, what it looks like to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ, that that what we believe, how we uh, focus, all this stuff in our in our brains that this that this matters in our world. It's almost like we've gotten to the point where where people have started saying Well, it doesn't really matter. I just have it my way, and you have it your way, and and it's it's like we're going through the drive thru at Burger King, and <laughs> and it doesn't matter. I I just I don't like ketchup and mustard. That's just a thing about me. Uh, you agree? Yeah, very good. Uh, so when I go to Burger King, I say no ketchup and mustard. And, and if they're being nice, they don't give me ketchup and mustard. If they're not being nice, then they wipe it off and you can tell. And it still tastes like yellow mustard because that stuff is strong. Um, but, but it's like we've done that with our faith, that you're just going through the drive-thru and you're saying, I'll take this, I'll take that, and I'll hold the ketchup and mustard. I don't need that. That's uh, convicting or, or, or I don't like that part. Uh, and it's truly, truly strange, and I have a few ideas uh, as to why, and I'll just, I'll just say them. This is what I think is going on. I think we often ask the wrong questions of our faith. I think we naturally come to our faith and we come with questions, but I think our questions uh, have gotten off track as the American church. And the first question I'm referring to is how can I be entertained? We, we've decided to worship this idol of entertainment, this idol of having fun, this idol of everything it should be uplifting, everything should be about me, everything should should be something that that I like. And it's this question of how can I be entertained by my faith? How can I be entertained by my religion? It's, am I having enough fun? Is this following God thing fun? Do you get what I'm saying? I don't feel like we say that a lot in the church, but isn't that going on? Don't you see that among other Christians, other people, that, that they say, well, um, you know, it, I'm, I'm following God, but, but it's just, it's hard. And, and somehow, by being hard, it makes it seem like it's wrong. Well, I'm sorry if I'm the first one to break it to you, but there's no promise that this is fun. Actually, Scripture says the opposite. So, so Luke, uh, chapter 9, 23 through 24, Jesus is speaking to them, and he says, it says this, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall be saved. Sorry, that's not that fun. It's not. It's a life more about faithful obedience to God. It's a life more about following uh, Jesus, but it's also a life that is worthwhile. It's not that it's fun, it's not that it's bubbly or that it's cheery all the time, but it's worth it. And it's the best possible life that we could have. It's a life that is so meaningful, but it's not fun. And if you're looking for fun in the church, you're probably going to be disappointed over and over again. Or you're going to just put everything through that lens like, well, I went on Sunday and and the the kids come up from children's church and and I have found myself tempted the same "Oh, did you have fun down there i I don't want them to have a terrible time, but is fun the the filter? Oh, you went to church on Sunday. well, was it fun? I hope you could say it was meaningful. <laughs> I hope you could say that it's spoken to your life but but fun what what a what a small word. What a fleeting idea. It just, it just goes away. One last example. You know, Earlier I, I pulled Levi up here and we talked about driving around and praying and I said that he was in the car with me not all at once, I'm not cruel but he was in the car with me for about six or seven hours total in the last several weeks as we prayed. Do you think Levi had fun the whole time? If you know an eight-year-old boy in your life, you will probably guess that it was not the most fun thing. He volunteered to do it. I didn't like drag him. Don't like think I'm, I don't know, dragging my kid to do the spiritual thing. I thought that would be terrible. But he, he liked it. It was meaningful for him. He grew in it. He, he now thinks about prayer in everyday life. Just just a couple weeks ago, Susan was doing an away game with our oldest son, William, for soccer. And I, w- I was doing ones in Murphy's uh, because we're one of those kind of families. And uh, she texted me that, that the game wasn't going well and that William was goalie and that it was hard. And Levi said, oh, what was the text? And I told him, he said, can I pray for William?" Why? Because he's learned this pattern. He's learned that when hard things come up, when things come up in life, we, we come before God. Now, he's not doing it because it's fun. But he's doing it because it's meaningful. And, and as I drove around with him, I was convicted half the time because we would do a street and we would stop and, and I would say, oh, how's your praying going? And he said, it's going really well. You know, There was, there was this house that had cars in the driveway. So I thought that somebody probably lived there all the time and that it wasn't a cabin. So I prayed for the people that lived there. And then the next house, I noticed that there wasn't cars. And, and I prayed that it would be a nice cabin and that they would have fun. And I prayed the same thing for two houses in a row. <laughs> I mean, They're like, I'm doing my left, he's doing the right, and I'm feeling convicted. I'm like, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at the house, I'm noticing it. But my mind's not doing what his is doing. And he said, I, I drove past to this house and there was a tree, probably from last winter, that was still down on their deck. And, and he said, I pray that they would have strength, that they could fix their deck and remove this tree. And again, it's not to lift up Levi. It's to say that the kid, kids can get this. Right? But it's not about fun. It's about faithfulness. It's about walking with God. Second question, and I'll end with this one. The second question that that I think we're asking in the wrong way is how can I be fixed right now? This this urgency. Right now. I I believe in Jesus. I got this thing going on right now. Solve it. How, How can you solve it? Uh, my lack of employment right now. How, how can it be fixed immediately? My living situation, fix it right now. My relationship with my kids. Boom, let's solve this thing. Why can't my Christian faith do that? Why, why, why am I living in this way? And, and, and my marriage, let's just fix it right now. Let alone that it took me 20 years of my marriage for my marriage to become what it is but God just fixed it, boom, like a lightning bolt from heaven. Boom, perfect marriage. And and there's this idea of the urgency, this idea of of the immediate, that that this has become a thing that isn't about the journey, that isn't about walking with God, that isn't about walking with people, that isn't about uh, living out your faith in the day-to-day, everyday practices, but yet it's become kind of this, this instant solving of, of issues that we see in our world. And if that's the case, then, then why would you not be tempted to just piece together stuff? Because then you could just say, well, God will just fix this for me. And, and we kind of do that sometimes. Uh, we, we kind of expect it to be this, this religion of quick fixes. Again, instead of this day-in and day-out process. So the Apostles' Creed, which we read earlier, it's, it's had uses through the centuries, shaping God's people, unifying God's people, and sometimes correcting false teaching, both inside the church and outside the church. But again, it's only as youthful as it is reflective. It's only as helpful as much as it shines the light of God. It shines the light of the Bible. It's like the moon I talked about in the beginning. It's only as beautiful as it is reflecting the sun. The Apostles' Creed beauty is in its ability to reflect the teachings of the Bible and the light found within it. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp my feet a light on my path let us always be people who let God's word light our path and direct us where to go Amen